This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say, hey, howdy, folks. Welcome back to another fun-filled episode of Equity Mates, the show where we, you know, invest in stuff. Whether you're a total noob or you're just basically the Warren Buffett of your block, we're here to help you from zero to donuts. I mean, dividends. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome to the party, pal. Just a heads up, we've got licenses and stuff, but we don't know your money situation. So what we say, we take with a grain of salt or a donut hole. As always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. Who am I? Uh... I am going to guess your Homer Simpson. Correct. He's absolutely nailed it. And really just because of the donut the stuff. Donuts. Nothing else giveaway. gave it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, um, my name is Bryce, not Homer Simpson. And if you have just joined us, welcome. ChatGPT is writing my intros for me. If you have a persona that you would like ChatGPT to... Uh, to do for me, send it through. Contact at Equity Mates. But Ren, we have a massive episode today. One that... Um, we thoroughly enjoy doing every month and one that is enjoyed by the Equity Mates community purely just based off the number of questions we get for these episodes and it is an Ask an Advisor That's series. right. Uh, every month, uh, we get one of Australia's best financial advisors in the hot seat and we put your questions to them. We know that advice is expensive and so hopefully this is a way to get some of your questions answered this month in the studio, we had Patrick Malcolm from GFM Wealth Advisory and we spoke, we covered a lot of ground. We covered investing, we covered, um, I guess, wealth strategies more generally. Uh, we had a number of rapid fire questions. Investing for kids is something that keeps coming up. Tools that he uses. Yeah, tools that he uses. Yeah, a couple that, um, one that I've got a tab open and I might do some exploration yeah, after this, yeah. but we'll let him explain it. And then we finish by talking about, I guess, the work of financial planners. Um, Patrick's quite passionate about getting more people in the field. So, we cover a lot of ground in this interview. So, Bryce, uh, without any further ado, you got any further ados to do? <laughs> I don't have any ados. Okay, great. Just well, let's get into this one. <laughs> uh, here is our conversation with Patrick Malcolm, Senior Partner and Certified Financial Planner at GFM Wealth Advisory. Patrick, welcome to Equity Mates. Thank you, Bryce. Thanks for having me. Now, to kick things off, or would you rather? Would you rather travel the world for free for a year or have $150,000 to spend as you please? Am I answering this question or is my wife answering this question? <laughs> um, I think I'd take the 150000 to spend as I please because I think I could do the 
travel around the world for less than 150000 And then I'd invest the rest, Bryce, of course. Nice. <laughs> Spoken like a true financial advisor. <laughs> Got to play the numbers game. <laughs> what about if it was 50000 to spend? Uh, I'd probably take the overseas trip. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that. What would be the number There's to get There's a tipping point somewhere. But free implies that you could just go. You could have a multi-million dollar around the world Yep, first class. Yeah. yeah best true. hotels. Best, best hotels, hotels, best yeah, food. Yeah, yeah. Tr- everywhere. Yes. It's a tough one. That's a very tough start. That's mm. a very tough start. Yeah, well, they get easier from here. That's, That's cool. a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do, Ren? Well, I would have said the 150000 as well because I was like, I could get a really good trip away for fifty grand. But you've really enticed me with the unlimited spending. <laughs> yeah, the there was no yeah, qualifier. Yeah. And it would be like every city you go to, it'd be like, uh, you know, I'd be like private tour of the Coliseum. Yeah. Like, lock it down and yeah. I want to be the only yeah. one in there. Yeah. yeah. So front, maybe that. Yeah. Front row Yankee Stadium. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sort of yeah, yeah. Yeah. Super Bowl, like all yeah. of that. Yeah. Best <laughs> chefs. Masters. True. Like, true, yeah, true. all the sports games. All the sports yeah, you've oh sold this right. I'm on the other <laughs> side now. I'm on the other yeah, side yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. All nice, right. Well, nice. I mean, Patrick's a big Carlton fan, and when this episode's out, we'll know if they won. You'd be able to get grand final tickets as well. Let's not talk about it. Yeah, it was about the whole thing. No, it's been a good run. Yeah. Anything from here is a bonus. No, yeah, that's what they all like say. Yeah, yeah. That's all. <laughs> spoken like a true pessimistic Mr. supporter who's had to put up with 20 years of grief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll save that for the AFL podcast because we, we are here uh, for an Ask an Advisor episode. We've gone out to our audience and got their questions. And as always, they flood in. If you do have a question for an advisor, uh, hit us up, ask at equitymates.com and we'll ask it on the next episode. But before we get into it, an important disclaimer, whilst we are licensed and whilst Patrick is a licensed financial advisor, none of us are aware of your personal financial circumstances. This episode is for education purposes only. Any advice is general. With that said, let's crack in. Let's do it. Now, in prep for this, Pat, can I call you Pat? Of course you can call me Pat. (laughs) In prep for this, you you actually mentioned a couple of specific tools that you use that we hadn't heard of before. So before jumping into the listener questions, I thought it'd be great to start there because there's some general tools that I reckon a lot of people are going to get a lot of value from. So let's start with budgeting. Mm-hmm. What what do you use in your daily life from a budgeting point of view? Yeah, so I use a tool called um, Pocketsmith. It was a little bit disappointing. There was an Australian app called Pocketbook that disappeared from yeah. the market. Yeah, Zip Didn't took Zip, zip took it, it out yeah, and it's yeah. just vanished, which is really disappointing. So I use, um, I'd say it's more of a, a a tool for a desktop computer than an app. The app's okay; it's not amazing, but um, what it applies, it applies a, a business like process to your personal budgeting okay so you can generate profit and loss balance sheets and these sorts of things and i think the starting point with budgeting is i think it's really hard to budget without looking at the past as a reference for the future now that sounds very vague (laughs) but if you don't know what you've spent on certain things i don't know how you then make an assessment of how you move forward. I mean, the, cl- the classic example of that is everyone looks, says like, oh, I could do a hundred bucks a week for groceries yep. because it just feels like a good feels round right, number. Yeah. It never looks at, oh, I've actually been spending 150 yeah. bucks for So less. I call that bottom up budgeting. Mm. The budgeting that I'm talking about, I refer to it as being top down. So looking back at what you've spent, what you've spent and then making adjustments from there. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, we're not going to go about... You shouldn't be drinking a latte a day or <laughs> smashed avocado or that sort of stuff. It's just complete rubbish, okay? That's not financial planning. But I don't know how you go about setting a budget without looking at what you've spent in the past. And the really good thing about Pocketsmith, and there's other apps like this, is you can feed in all your past data 
It uses tools to classify those into certain categories, so groceries, petrol. Sometimes you need to teach it. You know, that's Woolworths, the petrol station, rather than Woolworths, the supermarket. Uh, so Woolworths, the supermarket. And once you get that right, you've got to, then got a really good sense of, okay, well, this is what I can set myself. And from a budgeting perspective, if you're then looking to save and you've realised, well, actually, I don't have a savings capacity, it then gives you a reference point to say, well, what are the categories can I pull back on to get to my spending goal okay so maybe that's well i'm eating uber three times a week i'm going to eat uber two times a week and that saves me 50 dollars a week that can work towards a goal so i think it's a great tool is it free it's not free there are free versions of it bryce uh it is paid but i think it's worth the, i've got the paid version i think it's about 180 australian dollars a year okay i honestly think it's worth its weight in gold here's a question would it be tax deductible Oh, I'm not going to get into okay. that. <laughs> okay. I don't, suspect, I, don't, I don't suspect it would be because... It's not deriving an income. No, nah, it's not produced. Yeah, yeah. It's actually saving you yeah, expenses. Yeah. yeah, so I don't think it would be taxed it up. Well, but hey, I, I've, if, I've, I've just had a look. Uh, not sponsored, but there is a free version yeah. of it. Uh, but hey, I just I, don't think it gives you... It yeah, and then it, it scales up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you can try before you... Roughly go. 18 bucks a month, call it, or thereabouts 15 bucks a month. Yep. If that's going to save you more than that, Obviously, net positive. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm not sure how... It's, it's a really interesting time because I think, it's, I think it's so easy to budget, but it's also so hard. It's so easy because there are these wonderful tools, Bryce, but at the same time, the tap and go are the things that yeah, yeah. kill people. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. it is a death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, so, you know, our parents probably worked off the envelope system where you get your pay in cash and you divide it up amongst a whole heap of envelopes. And, you know, once that envelope's finished, well, you can't spend any more money yeah, on that thing, yeah. yeah. And you sort of can't do that now. It's really, really hard. But at the same time, there are these tools that can keep you disciplined and really help with your budgeting and your saving and therefore investing. Yeah, nice. The second one was around getting good deals. Now, yeah. we're in an environment at the moment where... Any deal is, is helpful for the for the bottom line. And yep. we have a show on our Get Started Investing podcast where we're trying to find deals to save us upwards of 100 bucks a month. Yep. So what are you using to find good deals? Yeah, as you can probably see through po my use of Pocketsmith and being a financial planner, I'm quintessentially stingy. Yeah, it's in my <laughs> DNA, okay? So I love a good deal. I think, um, you know, there's all these websites out there you can get good deals from, but in terms of things where you get really good bang for your buck with, I think a choice subscription is absolutely fantastic. Um, so, you know, where you want to get, when you want to compare fridges or laptops or these sorts of things, choice is really good for that. But where I've found choice really valuable is with things like insurance. And if you went through your budget and you classified insurance as an out and out item rather than saying, well, that's health insurance or car insurance. It's really up there in terms of expenditure. It's probably top three, yeah? So if you can save $500, $1,000 here or there on those sorts of things through a choice membership, which you can do, it's really good at comparing private health insurances. There's some really bad ones out there. I'm not going to name any of them, but choice is really, really good at that. Great with car insurance, home insurance, those sorts of things. How is it different though from a from an insurance point of view or like yep. financial services to what is freely available on Finder or Compare the Market or yeah. any of those sort of comparisons. Yeah, so with those, my understanding is, and I could be wrong here, often they take a commission or they get... Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. how they make their money. Like, Well, I'm not sure about Finder, but Compare the Market or iSelect and stuff. So it's not they fully authentic. No, no, and you're not getting a true picture of 
the whole marketplace and they might steer in a certain way because that gets them the highest commission but choice isn't like that yeah yeah so did it used to be free because i re- i remember going on there quite often it's years ago the choice website choice yeah, yeah i suspect look I, su- I suspect i suspect the same thing as with pocketsmith there's a lot of stuff that you can get on the website for free all the good really stuff's good. hidden behind a paywall though i'm trying to yeah. find a mattress at the moment and, and everyone <laughs> recommends go to choice and they'll tell you which are the good mattresses you yeah. have to pay for the membership. I did, I, did, I did use it for the mattress thing when we were looking for a mattress, so I can say I have Share, used it for that. Flick us your login. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how much is a good night's sleep worth? Thousands. Thousands, yeah. definitely thousands. So stop being so stingy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it takes me a long time to do these things, so I'll get there one day. Yeah, so those are two tools where I think there's an, there's an investment there. Um, and certainly if you're struggling to make ends meet, you know, me sort of saying, well, go out and spend $180 on this and $180 on that. and But... If you can afford it and you're looking to save money, I think they're really good tools just to get the basics right and yeah. build from there. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Well, let's turn to investing. And uh, to kick us off today, we have a recorded question from Michael. Hey, Bryson Wren. I've read your book on investing and two others, as well as follow you guys on socials and your investing podcasts. The main message I get is investing can be for anyone and it's important to just get started. I've recently spoken with my accountant who is also a financial advisor and she said to forget about investing and to attack our mortgage. While I do agree the mortgage is important, it was kind of a big blow and left me a little confused as to why not at least put aside small amounts for investing. She also made a comment that insinuated that investing in shares is for people with more money and essentially for us to not pursue, which was an even bigger hit as I've been getting really excited to get into the world of investing. Just wondering if you guys would agree with her or what your thoughts are on the matter. Cheers. Michael from Sunshine Coast. All right, Patrick. There's a lot in that. There's a lot in that. The first thing is I must disagree with the sort of assertion that investing is just for rich people. It's Mm. just complete garbage. Yeah. Um, I think anyone can invest. And one of the benefits that we've had with technology and all sorts of things over the last little while or over a prolonged period of time is investing is far more accessible than what it used to be, yeah, you're not calling up some guy at the stock exchange to buy shares. You can do it online and you can do it online pretty quickly. So um, anyone with any sort of money that's got the cash flow can invest. It's, it's a really, really tough question because at the environment that we're in with interest rates being so high, that hurdle rate that you need to achieve to make that investment worthwhile is a lot higher, okay? So if your mortgage had a 1% at the start of it, which was the case a little while ago, the hurdle rate that you needed to get on your investment wasn't very high to go over that mortgage rate, okay? Now we're sort of up in the sixes, okay? So your investment needs to generate an after-tax return to exceed the benefit of paying down your mortgage, okay? I guess the hardest thing in financial planning is it can be a very precise science. There's an answer that's going to be right or wrong here depending on what that investment produces in the future. But to think that that investment would need to produce a rate of return of say 10% to beat your mortgage, which is six on an after-tax basis, give or take, it is really hard. But at the same time, you know, I think we focus very much on diversification from an asset class perspective. I think diversification of strategy is important as well. You know, not having all your eggs in the one basket, i.e. not paying everything off the mortgage, maybe carving a little bit off what you're repaying additionally to that mortgage to invest isn't such a bad idea. So I know I've sort of straddled the camps there, but the reference point is it's it's a harder environment 
to beat that after-tax return because interest rates are a lot higher. But at the same time, I think having a little bit each way isn't such a bad thing. Mm. So one other thought that I have when this comes up, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this. It's, a, it's I guess, a liquidity question. Like Absolutely. for people that uh, spend all their time really focused on paying off their mortgage, I understand that impulse. Mm. Like it's the biggest piece of debt you're ever going to have in your life yep. and you, you want to get it off the books. But what you don't want to be is 50 mortgage-free, heaps of capital gains in the house that you own outright, but no liquidity. Yep. And when you might need to draw on some money and yep. then you have two super illiquid assets, super that you can't draw on and a property that yep. you could get another mortgage on, but you don't want to do that. Yep. Um, does that factor in as Absolutely well? Absolutely yeah. it does. Yeah. And I think the other risk that you're alluding there too is leaving your run too late. Dollar cost averaging is a very, very powerful strategy, okay? So what does that mean? It means that you can sort of smooth out returns if you invest over a period of time of, say, 20 years consistently rather than 10 years. So the framework with that, I guess, is around maybe working out how long it's going to take to repay your mortgage at the current rate and then what you could push that out to and then using that surplus cash flow that you've got to either invest outside super or inside super or a combination thereof yeah so it could be you've you know this is your minimum mortgage repayment you're going to have your mortgage repaid in 10 years let's make it 20 what's that gap how should i be directing that towards investments maybe outside super versus investments inside super but i get your point if you want to retire at 50, and it sounds like you're pretty keen to do that. Oh, I mean, who wouldn't like the <laughs> idea of that? Yeah. But you're right, you can't have it all in super, super in your house. So that's, that's the diversification of strategy yeah. that's really important yeah. as well. So Pat, you know, the, the question of paying off a mortgage or investing yep. or investing in super yep. and paying off a mortgage is one that we get literally every week. Yeah, I think it's the probably the biggest question that people our age have. Yeah, like yeah. earning more than they're spending for the first time in their life. Hotly followed by which broker should I use? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and when we you know collated all the questions, no surprise, this was right up there. Yeah, and you mentioned that you had a decision making framework to help people with this. So can you talk us through? Yeah, that? so the decision making framework is around that the mathematics that I was talking about with that mortgage. So if you're repaying your mortgage at such a rate that it's going to be gone in 10 years, okay, maybe you want to have it paid off in 20 years. What would you reduce your repayments to to have it paid off in 20? How much cash do you have? And then using that cash to either invest inside super or invest outside super. And why this is really important, Bryce, is because um, how long have we got with super? Because I can probably talk about it for about 50 years, but anyway, that's okay. Um, I get really excited about superannuation. Uh, no, no, well, the, and the reason why this is really important, and it's really, they're really good questions from your listeners, is the system isn't set up in a way now that is conducive to you catching up later in life with superannuation. So what do I mean by that? There are limits in terms of how much you can put into superannuation on a pre-tax basis, okay? Used to be 25,000, it got recently got indexed to 27,500. So combined with what your employer puts in for you, and then with salary sacrifice contributions on top or money that you put in that you claim a tax deduction for, there's a limit of $27,500 a year. Many, many years ago, was $100,000. You could put in $100,000 of your pre-tax salary into super. So what does that mean? You could actually leave your run quite late in life and catch up. You can't do that, yeah? You really can't do that. So leaving super until you're 50, 
you may actually run out of time because that 27,500 max, well, you may cap that out based on what you're earning and you may be able to contribute more than that, but you can't contribute more to it. So, you know, my situation, I've got a mortgage, unfortunately, okay? But my wife and I put the maximum amount that we can into superannuation each year and we're fortunate to be able to afford to do that. But we do that because we know we can't catch up later in life. So if you can afford it, um, and there's you're not massively trading off how long it might take you to pay off a mortgage, you should be putting extra money into super. Now, what's that age? I think it's really hard to tell a 30-year-old to sell sacrifice into super. And I'm being quite binary here in terms of numbers, but it's 30 years until you can access it, potentially longer, okay? I think 40, you've got to start thinking about it. 50, you've got rocks in your brain if you're not putting extra money into super and can't afford it. I've been thinking about this in terms of salary sacrifice. Well, not salary sacrifice, but just getting money in as early as possible into yep. super. So you can then get to a meaningful amount where you can then do SMSF. Yeah. And start then buying like assets that we would probably want to buy outside, yep. but you'd have a chunk of cash yep. in super to actually do it. Yep. And then whilst you don't get access to the benefits of that asset, it's still all within the framework. I of would super argue that fund. you do get access to the benefits of the asset because it's grown in value. Yeah. Well, sorry, what I mean is like, I, Tangible, I can't yep. realize that, yep, that until I retire. But if, yep. if you're getting to 250K as quick as possible in your self-managed, yep. Yep. You, you can play with it, I guess. Is, yeah, 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 you can. Yep. Do you contribute extra? No, I don't. But I'm, and I'm, I'm not like trying to buy a house outside of super at the moment. It doesn't yeah, make yeah, sense yeah. for me. No. But I think once you kind of, I'm just thinking through like once you get to that point, like I, met, I met someone recently who was young and yep. they were doing a lot of like startup and small cap investing yep. through their self-managed super. Smart. Oh, and yeah, and yeah. they're like, we've got the liquidity in there to be able to take some of those risks because yep. I've got a 30, 40 years in front of me. Absolutely. And they're the sorts of really with your super and this sort of, we're sort of maybe steering to investment strategy a little bit here. You know, it's really interesting. You speak to 30 year olds and they say, oh, I've got my super in the conservative strategy. And you're like, what are you doing? It's mm, going to be there for 30 mm. years. Yeah. yeah. Like have it invested in the high growth option. Yeah. And that's sort of what you're talking about, having an exposure to asset classes that will produce an attractive long-term return. And you're not really worried about the volatility, Bryce, because it's not something that you're selling in your personal name. Yeah. But well, just to follow on for that, and we have a question here from, uh, from the community. It's The question is, what are the signs to start making extra contributions as you're building wealth outside of super? In yep. other words... I guess at what point in terms of maybe cash flow, yep. free cash flow, whatever, is it a good idea to start thinking about Yeah, it? so I think the first point is is what we're talking about here, putting extra money into super, is either what we call salary sacrifice, which many listeners may have turned off. It's heard of. It's distinct from salary packaging. Okay, salary sacrifice is trading off some of your wage, okay, which then goes into super, okay? And just to be clear, the benefits of doing that, when that contribution goes into super, that's taxed at 15%, okay? Your marginal tax rate may be 34.5, it may be 39, okay? So you're instantly saving by having that money go into super, okay? So the first thing is you need to have a savings capacity. You can't sacrifice something you don't have. I think having your mortgage under control, those numbers that we were talking about before, whereby if you're repaying your mortgage at such a rate that it's going to be paid off in 10 years, if you're, say, you're 40, and you're going to leave yourself in a position where you're 50, where your mortgage is paid off, 
but you can't catch up with your super contributions because of these caps, that's the time. So excess savings capacity, mortgage under control. I think the other thing you have to position in as well is you need to understand that you can't lay your hands on that money until you're at least 60, okay? So there's lots of financial decisions that you can make where you can sort of backtrack and say, look, I bought these shares, but I really need them to you know, do some renovations to the house or buy a new car or go on holiday. Once the money goes into super, it's there until you meet a condition of release, which is at least age 60, okay? So you need to be comfortable that you're not going to want to access those funds in the immediate term. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned there, um, you know, some of these things you, you might not need to do until you're like 40 um, and, yeah. and stuff like I'm that. Being, I'm being but quite binary, yeah, but yeah, it's sort of, as I said, I think 30 is very early to be putting well, extra money into super. I, I just, I, something that I've been pondering about recently just in my own personal finances is that like i might be in the best position i'll ever be in just because uh my partner and i are both working we make okay money don't have kids don't have a mortgage like the capacity to invest and contribute now i might never enjoy this again and then it's like am i making the most of it or am i still doing too much uber maybe that's investing. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's investing outside super then rather than investing inside super i think it's a really big call even in spite of all of that to put the money away and say i'm not going to touch it until yeah. i'm 60 but look you know i think we talk a lot about the benefits of time the benefits of compounding think about the benefits in super where you're starting with 85 cents in the dollar rather than 65 cents in the dollar or less than your personal name. And that compounded impact over time is massive. Yeah. It's really, really big. And the other thing that people maybe miss the piece with Super 2 is the actual environment in which it's invested is concessionally taxed as well. So when you make a concessional contribution, it's taxed at 15%, but then the income's also taxed at 15%. So you're getting the compounding on the compounding, if that makes sense. And there's also discount for capital gains. Where it stands at the moment is once you get to 60, this is a long way off for the three of us, but nonetheless, it's a tax-free environment up to a pretty generous limit, $1.9 million. So there's no better place to have your wealth in retirement. And there's probably a whole heap of 40-year-olds that are probably snoozing at the moment. But um, yeah, you sort of got to think, you got to you got to think ahead of the curve with it. Uh, well, let's bring it back to, I guess, a, a really common question for people more our age, in mm. their 30s, late 20s. The dream of buying a house. Yeah. And Bryce and I are both on this journey at the moment. We're saving for a home deposit, speaking to mortgage brokers, going to inspections and realizing... Hope you're not eating smashed avocado <laughs> yeah. or buying coffees every day or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's so it's a common thought about how you set yourself up. And a question that we got through was, um, I guess, around investing time horizons. Yeah. Um, and let's say they've got some cash flow, they're putting some money away, they want to buy a house, maybe, you know, call it, three, five, seven years. Um, yep. How should they start thinking about what they do with that money? Yep. Yeah, it's a, re it's a really, really tricky question because time horizons when it comes to investing, there's nothing more important, okay? So with superannuation, if you're investing for 30 years, you can take on some risk and sort of say, I'm prepared to ride that volatility. But if you're saving for that house deposit, okay, and the day before you want to sell those investments, the market falls 10%, then you've suddenly got 10% less purchasing power, okay? Probably not a great thing, yeah? So as well as being a quintessentially stingy financial planner, I'm pretty conservative as well. I think if you're investing for three years, 
if you you can sort of see the time horizon i know this is very very boring but if you can see your time horizon for buying a house in the next three years i would not be taking any risk with that money okay i wouldn't um that's a very short space of time and, and markets can do a lot in three years five years i find a really awkward one it's that's sort of in between where it's not quite long term but it's probably a little bit longer i'd probably be drawn to being conservatively invested I think if you're sort of saying, I view my investment time horizon for owning houses beyond seven years, maybe a portion of what you're saving, you could, could direct towards some market-linked investments. But my view is that when you're saving for a specific purpose where you need a lump sum of capital, I probably wouldn't be taking risk with it. And look, the one thing now is at least investing defensively, you're getting an okay rate of return it's certainly not higher than inflation on an after tax basis but you know we had term deposits with zeros at the front of them yeah, okay yeah. you're now getting where you can get sort of high interest at call accounts sort of in the mid fours and then if you play the game with the 250 dollars a month or whatever it is you can probably get five so yeah, i was just about to say that we are both in high interest savings accounts yeah it's just like Th that is the one silver lining at this moment. At this yeah. point in time, with the the other side of that being that when you get the mortgage, the interest rate is yeah, a lot higher yeah, than what yeah. it was before. So <laughs> you, we sort of can't have our cake and eat it too, yeah. if that makes sense. So yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, yeah, you know, in our firm, we deal with lots of retirees and self-funded retirees, and you talk about their defensive investments, and they're so happy that their defensive investments are producing a higher rate of return. So say, yeah, but your kids have got the higher mortgage rates. Mm. They're like, oh yeah, that's right. So yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. 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 Now, to close out the investing convo before we take a break and then move on, small caps v large caps. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I think this has been a little bit missed. Um, it's really interesting when you look at um, where the market is positioned at the moment. Um, we're certain personality types in the finance industry and we love putting things in buckets and groups and cohorts and these sorts of things. And we talk about the ASX 200, but to sort of divide out the small caps from the large caps. In Australia, we generally consider the top 100 stocks to be the large cap stocks. Small caps, we generally consider, or the index is 100 through 300. And then um, I think the micro cap index or the emerging market index is thereafter. It's really interesting when you look at the top 100 stocks as a cohort, as a collective, on average at the moment are only 5% below their all time highs. Okay, so that's the price index. Small cap index is 25% below. It's not its all-time high. The all-time high was set quite a while ago, but I'm sort of talking about the last two to three years. Now, there are some reasons for that. There are sector biases that exist between both of those indices, okay? The banks have had a really good run. We've got four really big banks in the top 100. That's helped the top 100 index. But the small caps have been a little bit beaten up. So pound for pound, you're getting a collection of investments at 25% lower than their recent high, which is in the last two years or so, versus the ASX 100, which is only 5%. So I think it's a really attractive time to be investing in small caps and micro caps with a long-term view. So when it comes to the small and the micro caps and you're talking to clients, are you picking stocks or are you picking managers? Yeah, we like to pick managers. We won't get into a debate about active versus passive. There are certainly some asset classes that are very suited to um, passive and index strategies. Our very firm view is um, active managers in the small cap space do add value over yeah, time. Yeah. And the research suggests this. Yeah. Emerging markets and small caps are yep. yeah, active plays a massive role. Yeah. yeah, so, um, and 
there are lots of ways to do this. Again, um, it's a lot easier to gain access to these parts of the market. So many, many years ago, you could probably only use a managed fund that had a prohibitive minimum, mm. okay? There are vehicles that you can buy on the ASX. There's a couple of really good listed investment companies that have done really well over a long period of time. There's one called Mirabuka. I always oh, get the yeah. I always get the name Mirabuka or Mirabuka. I always seem to get it wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> it's run by the same team that runs Afic. Okay, it's not precisely a small cap uh, listed investment company because it invests outside the top fifty. But that's mid caps and small caps. Again, we love putting things in buckets. It's made twelve percent a year over the last ten years. You could buy it at a little bit of a discount to its net asset value. I think that's you know, and it's got you know four of the stocks I just looked this morning. Owns carsales.com, owns realestate.com or REA Group, uh, Reese and Breville. Pretty good businesses, yeah. They're just not the biggest stocks on the ASX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the beauty with small cap stocks is small cap stocks do become large cap stocks, yeah. CSL was a small cap stock once upon a time. Is REA not a large Surely, cap? Surely, yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a mid cap. It might have gone X50. They do allow them to drift, but they've got it in their portfolio. Okay. It probably is. Just with Mirabuka. I mean, I don't, I don't criticize the investment no, 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 at all. No, 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 it's no. just the classification. Mirabuka yeah. is X50, whereas we typically define okay. small caps as being, so it's probably in that 50 to 100. They do let things drift, which makes sense. You don't want to sell something yeah, just because yeah. it's gone out of the index or buy it just because it's gone into it. So, yeah. There's another one in the micro cap space, which is really interesting. Um, I think many would have heard of Jeff Wilson. Um, runs a large stable of listed investment companies. They've got something called Wham Microcap. It's done really, really well. Names in there aren't quite as familiar as those in, say, a Mirabuka. But again, you're getting exposure to companies that, generally speaking, will grow much faster than the largest 100 stocks over a period of time. And with a long-term view, pretty good way to get an exposure. Well, Pay really nice, fully frank dividends. Listed investment companies are good because they do generally try and control the taxation outcomes, which can be better when you're doing your tax return at the end of the year rather than an ETF. Okay. Mm. Oh, especially yeah. Jeff Wilson. He loves the franking credit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Does he? Yeah, he was, he was leading the charge against the franking credit change. He was. He's doing it again now. Yeah, he's, beating his, yes. Yeah, My yeah. thing with small cap funds is the more names I know in it, the less interested I am. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that I mean, that is, like, that is why active management plays a role. Yeah. Because yeah. we don't recognize I think a mix yeah. of the. I think a mix of the two is nice. Having some names that give you a familiarity, but then also accepting that, there's a lot you're missing and that's yeah so it's a combination there i feel bryce where you get a comfort from knowing some of the names i.e car sales real estate reese breville and then maybe a few there well hang on what does that do yeah a good mixture of the two well we've uh, covered a lot of ground pat we're going to take a quick break and then on the other side we've got some uh quick fire questions from the community and then uh we'll close out with a bit on the industry itself exciting Welcome back to Equity Mates. We're here with Patrick Malcolm, Ask an Advisor series. We've covered off investing, we've covered off super, we've covered off tools and resources. And now we've got a few quick fire questions to get through. So first one, what is the best method to begin learning financial literacy or lingo whilst working full time? Uh, there's so many resources out there now. Yeah. I think uh, I'm not pumping up Equity Mates, but p- podcasts just amazing and the best thing about a podcast is you can do it on what is dead time yeah so you couldn't read a book 
in a car, right? It doesn't work. You shouldn't be reading a book in a car. <laughs> um, but it's just you know, such a good way. You know, I listen to podcasts when I'm walking the dog, yeah? Play them at, play them at 1.25 speed, which is good too. Get through it a little bit quicker. So I think um, podcasts are a really good way. Um, comparing how accessible information is around investing now compared to 20 or 25 years ago. Like I was a little bit of a dork when I was a teenager. I used to line up at the news agent waiting to buy shares magazine and that's how I... <laughs> I learn about investing, yeah, or going to the library or these sorts of things, the internet, podcasts, sensible things on YouTube. I know you guys have your Friday segment, which I always find very amusing <laughs> to see some of the things that are floating around. It always gives me a good giggle at the end of the week. But I think using what would otherwise be dead time to listen to things is a, is a really good way. Mm, mm, yeah, completely agree. Um, equity mates first though of course yeah well i mean the, the reason that we started equity mates was because we loved podcasts uh but they were really all american and a yep. lot of them were like the industry speaking to the industry yep. and we were like there should be one for people like us who yep. just want to learn yeah afr podcast is really good mm. as well those sorts of things there's there's numerous ones out there and um pretty easy to find as well so here's a big question and uh it's become more and more which i guess is a reflection of uh where equity mates listeners are in their lives what is the most tax-effective way to invest for kids? Well, this is a really tricky one because it depends on a range of different um, variables. The problem with investing in something like an ETF is it can pay out really nasty capital gains. Mm. Yeah, um, You probably want something that's pretty set and forget where you can reinvest dividends. I think some of the listed investment companies are really good. Um, there's so many children I know that have inherited AFIC shares that they're parents bought for them once upon a time you can reinvest the dividends they've also got a bonus share plan which is really interesting from a taxation perspective again depending on your individual circumstances but what happens there is rather than being given the dividend you get given extra share and it's not actually a tax event okay so that can be a really tax effective way i think the other thing too is is we can get really bogged down with it with the tax effectiveness of the investment there's some horrendous products out there investing for kids that are really expensive on a fee basis yeah so you might have a product that suggests it's tax effective and it may very well be but if you're paying an exorbitant fee on the investment the sort of fees wash out the tax effects or the benefits of the tax effects so i think sort of looking at the fee structure of certain investments and then thinking about the tax as well is a good way to look at it. I think the MER and AFIC is like 0.2% or something. It's just a, such a cheap way to get a diversified portfolio mm. of Australian shares. Again, it's just the Australian share market. But yeah, look, ETFs can work, listed investment companies can work, listed investment trusts, all these sorts of things. But it is a lot easier now than what it was 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, there's been like a flurry of platforms that have opened like kids' accounts. Like a lot of the online brokers have done it. Some of the yeah. micro-investing apps have done it. In terms of for new parents who want to like actually set up the account, yeah. like what's... And, you know, I've, I've heard people talk about trusts and stuff yeah. before. Like what... like. I, I'm a new parent. Like, yeah. what, do I, what what website am I going to? What am I actually doing? Yeah, so tr- look, trust can be... The, the problem with a trust is there's a fixed cost element to setting up a trust, which may not necessarily justify the sum that you're yeah. investing. And then also the ongoing cost of the compliance and tax return for the trust. You know, like, so you mentioned some products there yeah. that are good products to think yep. about. But how am I actually doing it? Like, am I just buying it through my brokerage account and yeah, then good question. claiming it as a kid's asset? On yeah, whatever? so inve- inve- you can invest directly f- 
for a child. It can be very tax ineffective though. So there's an amount that a minor can have tax free. It was $416 a little while ago. That number stuck in my head, but there's quite penalty of tax rates above and beyond that. Yeah, I only I think heard it that recently. Up, it's pretty crazy. 66 yeah, or 67%. Nuts. Look, yeah. and there's legitimate reasons for that. Yeah. You know, people putting ridiculous sums of money in their children's name and then mm-hmm. um, when it should be theirs. Um, you could always hold an investment in trust for which means that the person owning the investment in trust for is responsible for the the taxation outcomes yeah okay yeah Mm. well speaking of kids we've got one here excluding etfs what are some great companies to buy for kids that can just drp or dividend reinvest for 20 plus years yeah affix great i reckon mirabook is great exposure to small caps if you're investing for children and you've got a long-term investment horizon Play the small cap bias. Yeah, generally speaking, smaller companies will perform better. You know, a mixture of AFIC, a mixture of Mirabuka, maybe a little bit of WAM micro cap in there as well. You'd want some international exposure in there as well. It's really, really hard because you're starting with $500. You're not going to go out and buy four, right? But I think as it grows and you add, you might think about diversifying a little bit. So, yeah, AFIC's great. Mirabuka's great. Um, WAM, they all offer dividend reinvestment. They're all really, really good ways to invest for children for the long term nice and uh that was the explicitly in the question it was exclude etfs as well yeah like you can always there's always indexes and etfs as well yeah the thing with look as i said etfs are, are great they can pump out nasty taxation outcomes if the the trust has had a good year and it's triggered a whole heap of capital gains which can happen in an index fund as they chop things in and out yeah. whereas Something like, uh, you know, the listed investment companies I was talking about, um, they, re- they can be much better from a taxation perspective. They pay tax as a company, often distribute you a fully frank dividend, which may be better than a whole heap of realised capital gains yeah. from, an, from an ETF. This question is going to be an interesting one to get your answer mm. from because I feel like it might be a piece of string, but let's ask it. Yep. How much percentage should I save each pay? And then how should I split that percentage across saving and investing? Yeah, look, that's such a hard one. It's really, really hard because there are people out there that because of their financial situation, cost of living is extraordinary, particularly in the big cities in Australia, you may not be able to save, okay? So me sitting here and saying, well, you should be saving 15% of your salary is a little bit self-righteous, okay? But if you're earning a good wage, living at home with mum and dad, not paying many bills you probably should be saving a really good chunk of your salary and sort of to reference it back to those tools that I spoke about at the start, particularly Pocketsmith, you should be using that as a reference point for what you're saving. Why I find that's really good too is the other thing that we can do as we progress in our careers is we naturally spend more, okay? I'm sure you guys are the same, okay? You don't live like you were university students now, okay? You spend money on different things. Um, But and I don't have the data around this, but generally we, when we get a pay rise, we generally consume most of it, okay? So using Pocketsmith as a reference point to sort of say, well, this is what I'm spending and maybe this is how I'll, how I'll reward myself. But yeah, some people can't save any of their salary. Some people should be saving 80% of their salary, yeah? And then dividing that with between saving and investing, but it really, it really depends on your time horizon, yeah? If you're saving for a house in the next three years, 100% of it should be saving, okay? If you've got a savings capacity, you've paid off your mortgage, you should be investing all of it. Now, whether that's inside super or outside super is a different thing, okay? But it really depends on where you are. And it depends on family circumstances as well. You know, I've got two young children, 
when my wife took some time off work when they were younger, we couldn't save anything. And for me to come up with a binary percentage around what I'm, what we should be saving probably would have resulted in me losing my life. But <laughs> yeah, there's times in your life where you can't, you, you can't save. So oh, yeah, I just can't, you know, I see 30, 30, 10, I see all these sorts of percentages. I think they're garbage. It's really dependent on your circumstances. You know, if you're two singles and you're moving together, you should have a betting, better savings capacity as a couple because your bills are going to be lower. Again, if you're living at home and your expenses are low, you should be able to save a lot. If you're a young family and someone's taken some time out of the workforce, you may not be able to save. You may actually be chewing into your savings. So it really depends. And then that split between savings and investing, it de- depends on what the goal is. Yeah. So it was a bit of string. It did get... That's all right. That's all right. As, as I thought. Um, I did a very good job of not answering that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I think it's it's a good thing to think about. And it's a good reminder that like people who are uh, you know feeling the cost of living uh, crunch more than most, like it's okay if yeah. you're not... If you're not yeah, you can't, you can't, we can't guilt or shame people into um, thinking that you can get blood out of a stone. Like it's, it's tough out there, okay? We see this data around inflation. You need to understand with inflation, that's an average of a whole heap of different things, right? You know, I think food costs were up 20 or 25% at their peak, yeah? And groceries are a really big expense. Now, if your grocery bill's gone up 20 or 25%, maybe you can't save anymore. So... I think having these sort of silly rules around how much you should be saving, it's you just lots of people out there are really struggling with cost of living pressures and mortgage. You know, interest rates have gone up as well. So yeah, it's not an easy environment. Yeah. Well, uh, we are almost out of time, but we want to talk about the career of mm. financial planning and investing because we've had a lot of advisors on the show yep. uh, and we haven't really spoken about it. Uh, yep. But we know it's something that you're quite passionate about. Yep. So give us the pitch. There's a lot of uni students listening, a lot of people Good. starting their careers. Like. Um, uh, give us the pitch. I think it's a fantastic industry. Despite my youthful appearance, I've been in the industry for almost 20 years and I've been an advisor for a little bit more than 10 years. And I never regret the day that I entered into this industry. I don't. It's a fantastic profession. Uh, what do I like about it as a profession? It gives you lots of diversity on a day-to-day basis. So we've spoken about investing and what we would call strategy today. They're two different things, okay? There's the investing piece and then there's a strategy around should it be inside super, should it be outside super, should it be mortgage? So you get that diversity of roles. The other thing that you get to do is you get to deal with people on a day-to-day basis, which is really, really good as well, okay? So um, I couldn't bear to think of myself crunching numbers into an Excel spreadsheet all day. I do do it for good portions of the day, but all, not all the day. But the thing that I enjoy most about financial planning is that face-to-face interaction with people. Having listened to your podcast and watched uh, things on social media from you guys, um, there's always this desire to find stocks that have really attractive thematics and tailwinds. This industry has really attractive thematics and tailwinds, okay? There's been um, an exodus of advisors from the industry for a range of different reasons that we don't need to go through. So there's actually um, a shortage of financial planners. We've gone through um, a lot of upheaval in the industry. Um, people generally seek advice as they approach retirement. Um, the aging baby boomer is huge so you've got this uh, industry thematic where you've got a low supply of financial planners but high demand for financial planning advice it's a great industry it's a really good industry if you like dealing with people if you like solving problems 
I think it's something you should look at. It's really, really hard because, you know, I did a broad commerce degree. There's one financial planning subject. I did my master's in applied finance. There's one financial planning subject. Now, I was lucky I was in the industry and there are some universities that do it really well, but there are some universities that sort of touch on it at a very, you know, they all want you to do accounting and these sorts of things, which is great. But I think it's a, I think it's a great industry. And if there are university students listening, I would encourage them to have a look at the industry closely. Well, I think the fact that this episode exists is testament to the fact that mm. there's demand for more advisors. And, you know, Bryce and I both experience it personally. We don't have advisors. Mm. Um, and a lot of our audience are also feeling it. You know, we'd all love to get advice. Yep. So, you know, supply and demand. Yep. A key way that prices can come down is yep. if de- uh, supply goes up. That's so right. let's get some more planners out there. Absolutely. Sounds good. <laughs> Love it. Well, Patrick, thank you so much. Thoroughly enjoyed that. And keep the questions coming from the Equity Mates community. Thank you to everyone who put questions forward. If we haven't got through all of them today, we do have a weekly email that comes out on a Thursday as part of the Equity Mates newsletter. And it is where we get our advisors to answer one of the community questions as well. So if you're not signed up to that, make sure you head to equitymates.com slash emails to sign up to hear more from our advisors. Again, ask at equitymates.com to submit questions for next month. But Pat, thank you so much. Thank Covered you. Covered a lot really of ground. appreciate the invite. Thanks we, uh, for coming great. on. And I know we're releasing this after the weekend. I can say, say go, go blues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Thank you. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.